From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. A debt ceiling showdown. Will we get a debt ceiling deal? Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker and editor of the CQ Budget Newsletter. And we've got a lot to talk about today because Congress is racing to complete work on some big ticket items before adjourning for the August recess. There's a deal in the works to extend the debt limit and set spending levels for two years, while the House plans to vote on a bill to shore up struggling pension plans, and the Senate plans to give final approval to a permanent compensation fund for victims of the September 11 terrorist attacks. Joining me today to talk about the spending and debt limit deal is Kelly Madrick, who covers appropriations for CQ, and then our tax and finance reporter, Doug Sword, We'll explain the effort to rescue failing pension plans. Welcome to you both, Thanks, Kelly and Doug. Hey, David. Thank you. So, Kelly, let's start with you because there's new word today of a tentative deal on the debt limit and spending caps. The situation is still fluid, but what do we know so far? Give us the broad outline. So there's a tentative agreement to lift the um, discretionary spending caps by $320 billion over two years compared to what lawmakers envisioned for spending um, in a 2007, sorry, 2011 deficit reduction law. It would also extend the debt limit by two years through July 31st, 2021. And this is very important because the government's credit line is basically at risk. So there's debt limit relief by early September under the worst prediction from Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. And he just recently warned about that again, saying they really need the debt limit raised quickly because Congress is going to be on a prolonged break. And they're fearing this early September deadline for when he can't borrow any more money. And I think we have Secretary Mnuchin speaking to that point in a recent interview he did on CNBC. Let's play a little of that. I don't think the market should be concerned. I think that Everybody is in agreement that we won't do anything that puts the U.S. government at risk. And I think that nobody wants a shutdown in any scenario. Okay, so that's the debt limit portion. He's trying to reassure everybody that the markets shouldn't freak out. Well, we're going to get this covered. But the big debate here is really over these spending levels, right? Yeah, because, you know, there's always been this um, desire that the spending, the extra spending be paid for, that somehow there should be either cuts to programs, increased revenue, or what have you, just to cover the cost of increasing the spending cap so high. But, of course, at, at this point, all we're hearing is about $75 billion of the cost of that $320 billion is really going to be paid for. And um, most so of that— that won't sit well with a lot of uh, conservatives. Conservatives are going to howl. And right. also, you know, the, a lot of these savings won't won't even materialize until nine years into the budget window. They have this 10-year window. They look at when the savings will come. And so it's possible that authorizers could just decide to eliminate those savings with some future bill saving, saying, hey, we saved, you know— uh, Medicare from from huge cro- cost increases, or we save these big cuts, you know, or these big increases in traveler fees, or whatever. Um, so, you know, it really it's really not up to them as to whether those savings are actually realized, and that drives conservatives up the wall. Yeah, th- that's really a promise to save money way down the road by by extending the caps on those entitlement programs. Eight, nine years down the road, there's no guarantee that would actually happen. It's similar to the kind of machinations we see when lawmakers put together a highway bill. Um, I remember, you know, Transportation Infrastructure Chairman Peter DeFazio of Oregon saying, oh, yeah, well, the, the how we paid for that, that doesn't really matter at this point. And it's kind of similar when it comes to um, increasing spending for the budget. But 
that's going to be crucial when we watch the conservative fray kind of come in and weigh in on this deal. We've seen in the past that President Trump has decided to oppose these deals and then forced his, you know, chief deputy kind of um, OMB Director Mick Mulvaney, acting White House uh, you know, chief, of dire- chief of Staff right now, come out and defend it on television and say how great it is. And so a lot of that was pressed on by, um, you know, the very conservative talk, sh- talk show hosts who were saying that the president got rolled. So it's really up to President Trump as to who he's going to listen to. I know that Republican leaders have been very strong in their language that the president needs to listen to people who want to get things done on the Hill and that not taking a deal once it's agreed to, you know, would be a horrible idea. But it really is his decision whether he's going to sign the bill or not. And do we know where President Trump is on this right now? You know, he weighed in slightly this morning um, in, in an unrelated meeting with the leader of Pakistan. We are, I think, doing very well on debt. Uh, if you look at debt limit, however you want to define that, but we're doing very well on that. And I think we're doing pretty well on a budget. But he didn't talk specifics. He said defense would um, that they're working on getting a slightly larger number than last year's military spending limit, emphasized the importance of that said nothing on domestic spending, said nothing on how it's paid for. And so we're not really clear um, as the press watching this and as the public watching this as to what, how much he really knows about it and whether he supports it or not. And it's interesting, Kelly, because the White House team, the, the front man for the White House team all along here has been the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, even though you'd think it would be Trump's top guy, the chief of staff and the guy who has been the budget director, Mick Mulvaney, Why do you suppose it's Mnuchin playing the lead role here? Because we're talking about a former South Carolina congressman who is extremely conservative. This is Mulvaney. And who has historically voted against these deals. So, you know, just on its face, he's pretty unlikely to support any deal that isn't completely paid for. That's been his position forever. There's been a lot of work on the White House's part, however, to minimize that distinction. And they they have tried to say that Mulvaney and Deputy Director Russ Vogt of OMB is also involved in these talks. Um, But again, there's also this kind of tangential, like, relation for Mnuchin that he can be the master negotiator because the debt limit is one of the key things. Yeah, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi made clear she really doesn't trust Mulvaney and and doesn't find him credible. There's there's been all kinds of burns against Mulvaney and various stories from various voices for a few months. So finally, there's little time left to get this deal approved uh, with the House scheduled to adjourn this Friday. Uh, do we know how it's looking? Well, it sounds like a bunch of late nights this week, I believe, because there's going to be a lot of finagling about when the text comes out, what the rule's going to look like in the House, how they bring legislation to the floor, you know, who's going to agree uh, to move this quickly on the Senate. They might need expedited procedure depending on how long the House takes. And so that sounds like a lot of late night negotiating. The House is in a jam here if they just still want to get out by Friday and send it to the Senate. So, okay, so we'll be monitoring these fast-paced developments on this would-be deal this week. But meanwhile, Doug, the House plans to take up a bill long sought by Democrats to rescue failing pension plans. Why is this measure needed now? Well, well, hold on, long sought by Democrats. I mean, there are nine Republican co-sponsors of this bill. Okay. And 200 Democrats. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But as um, I said, long sought by Democrats. (laughs) Tell us why this, why the, why they think this bill is needed. There's an estimate that uh, uh, there's 130 multi-employer pension plans, as they're called, they're, they're union pl- pension plans, 
that are projected to become insolvent over the next 20 years, and that would impact 1.3 million people. It's a lot of people. Well, and the thing is, it's really front-loaded. Uh, most of these are, are, are coming up pretty soon. Um, and the, the big one, that the Teamsters, uh, the Central States Pension Funds, uh, are projected to go under, go under in 2025. And that's the same year that uh, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation is going to run out of money to service these plans. And the PBGC is the government backstop for, for private pensions. They take premiums from companies. Um, your company, everybody's company, and, and promise that they will make, make the payments even if the company goes under, but that's not going to be the case here without what More money. some are calling a bailout. Mm -hmm. And so this bill tries to fix that problem by doing what? Uh, it creates a, a pension rehabilitation administration that can issue bonds with full faith and credit of the government behind them. Uh, uh, they, they can issue treasury bonds and, and collect money and then make loans, and the projection is they'll make about $32 billion worth of loans to these failing pension plans. And then separately, there's just a $32 billion over 10 years for uh, financial assistance for these plans, because uh, some of them, even with the loans, they're not going to be able to make it. I see. And so there's the rub, right, because this is a pretty costly measure. Yeah, you add it together, it's $64 billion over uh, 10 years, and it, it, that's really uh, uh, something like two-thirds of that in the first year, I believe. So that's a hefty chunk of money they'd have to come up with. That is. And um, also, while, while there are going to be some Republicans voting for this, uh, Republicans have generally called this a bailout. And as Republicans pointed out, there seems to be a, a very targeted carve-out of uh, accelerated financial assistance for any plan with 300,000 or more members that uh, was in declining and critical status by 2015, which would be one plan. Yeah, that's oddly specific, Doug. That is very specific. Now, the Republicans aren't saying who it is, but it appears pretty obvious it's the Teamsters. Okay, so there's that issue too. Yeah. Uh, so this is headed for a House vote this week, and it seems likely to pass along mostly party lines. Yes. But does it have a future in the Senate? At the moment, no. Almost a very similar bill was uh, introduced by uh, uh, Senator Sherrod Brown in the last Congress, and it went nowhere in the Senate. And Doug, why don't these? Why are these plans all coming up short? Why don't they have enough funding right now? Well, Republicans would say that it's because uh, th these multi-employer plans, which are union plans, uh, half the plan trustees are union people, half are management people, uh, have different funding rules than the single employer plans out there. They don't have to do funding uh, to the same degree. Democrats would say that, well, just, just look at some of these industries like coal. I mean, a lot of companies have gone bankrupt. Uh, when a company goes bankrupt, they stop making contributions to the plan. Uh, yet they still have employees who are participants in the plan. Okay. So there's a lot of that going on. So there's a question of companies going under and the pension plan coming up short, and there's also the question of are they being managed properly, essentially. Or companies going under and then reappearing later as a private non-union shop. Okay, thank you, Doug. And on top of all of that this week, the Senate on Tuesday is expected to sign off on a measure that will provide a permanent financial lifeline to thousands of victims of the September 11 terrorist attacks who breathed toxic air at Manhattan's Ground Zero, the site of the former World Trade Center Twin Towers. The bill would provide however much money is needed to pay all eligible claims for first responders and other victims, and it's a big-ticket item, costing more than $10 billion in the coming decade and billions more dollars after that. 
So we'll be watching developments on all these fronts this week, and CQ will be covering it all for you. That does it for us today. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us an email. It's cqpodcast at cqrollcall.com. My thanks again to Kelly Madrick, our appropriations reporter, and Doug Sword, our tax reporter, for joining me. Thank you both, guys. Thanks a lot. Sure, David. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, you can stay up to date by subscribing to the CQ Budget Newsletter. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, NPR One, or just Google the phrase CQ Budget Podcast. See you next week.